I am very excited to be here on a very mild uh, July morning, just a touch of humidity. Uh, if you were here last week, you know, I think, that we talked about the call of Abraham. And what we talked about was how this, this question of how Abraham went from this Mesopotamian idol worshiper in like the course of 10 chapters to this hero of the Christian faith, someone who was willing to sacrifice his only son because he had such a radical trust and faith that God would restore that son. And we were asking a question, or I was asking a question, can we relate that, that, that journey that Abraham was on to our, to our own? Everybody's on the same type of journey. We're just, you know, there's, there's differences in what we're doing, but we're all on this journey. Some of us are brand new to it, and we talked about uh, that being that, you know, maybe a new, a new believer. Maybe you find yourself sort of in the wilderness. You're like mired in a certain sin pattern that you can't break out of. Uh, maybe, and I've had this in my life, I've had all these things in my life, but I've had times of kind of apathy or complacency where everything's kind of just humming along and you're on this very easy plane that's, that doesn't feel very challenging and it's easy to sort of get a little bored with your faith. Or maybe it's just the opposite. You're stuck in a pit where you feel like you're literally being crushed by what life is, is handing you. And wherever you are in that journey, you would ask yourself, well, how do I get from there to where I see Abraham, you know, this great hero that I read about all through the Bible, this guy that had amazing faith and trust in God? How do I, how do I get that? And so last time we focused on just the simple need to trust God enough uh, that you would follow him where he asks you to go. And I want to kind of expand on that and take that a step forward and talk about, well, okay, Abraham did trust God. It was a bit of a stutter step at first, but he did, and he did step out. What happened next in his journey, and, and what can that tell us, um, not only about our own hearts, but about uh, God's heart as well? So to do that, I'm going to briefly read again uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is the promise that God made to Abraham when he called him. God said, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's a lot here, but I want to focus on one particular aspect of this promise that God laid out. And it's the part that's the most tangible. And God reinforces this in verse 7. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham again and said, To your offspring I will lead this land. So I want to focus on these two parts of the promise because they are very, very tangible. You can touch and feel them. There's land that's been promised, even though obviously Abraham at this point has never even seen this land. And there's children promised here, even though Abraham is 75 years old and, you know, without children. Um, so I want to kind of explore how Abraham reacts to this promise, this amazing promise, in, in particular in these two areas. So we remember Abraham has spent his life surrounded by these mute idols, right? And suddenly, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, breaks in and speaks to him. He hears a voice that makes him these promises, now, this is an incredible beginning to a faith journey. This is very unlike mine. You know, there was no voice from the sky. There was no, like, 
clear direction in that sense. But I did feel a beginning. And I suspect that everybody that's on this journey does kind of remember a time, even if you've been a person of faith since you were a small child, there's this time where you were sort of energized, where you felt like, okay, I'm on my way. You've, you've, you've got some sort of a jump start. And there's this bang of enthusiasm with any new journey, right? It's fun. And you suddenly feel like you have direction and purpose. I, I know what God wants me to do. I know what I'm supposed to be uh, about. And, and it's a very exciting time. Abraham has this same sort of... Uh, bang of enthusiasm, right? For him, he leaves after these verses, and he goes to Canaan, and he starts building altars all around the land. And he, when he's building these altars, he's doing something that's very similar to like what an astronaut would do when he plants a flag on the moon. What Abraham's doing is he's walking around this land, and he's claiming it. He's making a faith claim. He's saying, in effect, I may not possess this land, but I claim it. Um, Abraham's claiming it in the name of God. An astronaut might claim it in the name of his country, but they're doing very similar things. And they're both uh, incredibly audacious claims, if you think about it. I mean, Abraham, at this point, is surrounded by hostile tribes, the astronauts surrounded by the vacuum of space, and yet they're, they're planting their flag, so to speak. So this is a fantastic beginning. And this reminds us of why we love Abraham and why he is one of the heroes of the faith. And it reminds us of our own kind of strong uh, beginning to a journey. But what we're going to find is, like with any beginning to a journey, life starts to creep in. There's little bumps in the road. Uh, there's just details. Stuff happens. And sometimes we get a little sidetracked. So let's read about that. We're going to go to Genesis 12:10 to 16, the text for today. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Okay, so the bump in the road is famine. It's the first real challenge in Abraham's faith journey. So you have this God breaking in sort of personally and making these amazing promises about land and people and relationship and kings coming from you. And Abraham's initial response is just this like overwhelming thank you in the way that he behaves. But then you know, things get a little difficult, and Abraham basically says, you know, I don't see a lot of food here, though, God, so I think maybe I should move down to Egypt and live like a bachelor for a while. And that's his sort of response to the first challenge. And in, if you think about that, in one decision, he has separated himself from both tangible aspects of the promise, land, children, right? He's, he's physically separated himself from the land. He's walked away from it. But he's done the same thing with his children because when he separates from Sarah with this little plan he has, he obviously separates himself from any ability to create children with her. So he just walked away with that one decision from both of those things. Now, when I say that, and when I thought about this, my first thought is, well, that's, that's probably too harsh. You know, that's a little unfair for Abraham, who is our hero, uh, to say that in his very first decision, he goofed up. You know, we don't want to believe that. I would submit, though, that 
uh, sometimes, sometimes when the facts that we're presented with don't sort of meet our expectations for a person, we want to hold on to our expectations of the person so it's the facts that we kind of manage in our minds, right? And we kind of allow ourselves to reinterpret things so we can hold our opinion, uh, our sort of our preconceived notion of that person or that idea that we had. Um, and I think that happens here. And I think there's actually evidence of a pattern of behavior here in Abraham's life that we can point to and see where this is not an isolated case. So the first exhibit that I would present is uh, the offer that he makes to Lot in chapter 13. Now, this is after they've come back. I feel like I'm spoiling the story, but they're going to make it back. When they make it back, Abraham and Lot are going to kind of be at each other's throats a little bit because they have so much stuff they can't get along. Probably remember it was God that had said, you really need to come alone. But Lot is here, and now there's a problem. And so Abraham comes up with this very immediate, rash plan I know how to fix this. He says to Lot, look out at this land, see what you like, take half of it. And scripture says that Lot in chapter 13, it says he lifted up his eyes. And that's really a way of saying he basically drank it all in. And he saw the Jordan Valley, that it was very beautiful. And so he took that, of course, he's gonna take the best part. And immediately, Abraham is again separated himself from a very big part of this promise because I think we all know God has uh, plans for the Jordan Valley and Abraham just gave it away. Exhibit B would be three chapters later, 10 years later, the Hagar affair. Now we know what happens here, right? Abraham and Sarah are getting a little bit impatient, right? They're waiting for these promises to come and so they take matters into their own hands, Abraham literally, and he uh, creates this new heir with Hagar. That immediately creates a distance between he and Sarai, right? They're at odds from the moment that happens. And so here he has again separated himself from part of the promise. So he knocked away the land with Lot. He knocked away the idea of children when he, when he came up with this plan with Sarah. Exhibit C in our kind of list of evidence against Abraham would be in chapter 20, about 15 years later. He's 99 years old, and they're still waiting. God appears to him in a tent, remember? And God makes a point in that tent. Seems to me he's making a very clear point. Abraham, Sarah, herself, is a part of this plan. So stop treating her like she's disposable. That child is going to come through her. Well, it's, it's very soon after that that Abraham heads back down uh, south. He leaves the promised land again, and he does this sister act again, where he says, you know, this is my sister, and he loses Sarah a second time. So he separates himself from the land and the children for a third time, fourth time in total. So I think this is enough evidence to say, okay, while Abraham may be a hero of our faith, clearly, clearly when he's pursuing God's plan, He's doing it by taking matters into his own hands, right? And that should feel uh, reasonably close to things that maybe we've done in our own life. I'll give you a piece of evidence how I think this is true. If you read through this entire story, you will see that Abraham has many conversations with God, but he never initiates one. Now, he may have, but it's never mentioned in Scripture. So in that entire time, God comes to Abraham 
and Abraham has a conversation. But in all these crises that we just went through, God, Abraham never once says, wait, stop. Let me just ask God what I should do. It not, doesn't happen once because Abraham feels like, you know, he's the one that's going to come up with a plan. That alone, for me, of, of everything else today, is extremely convicting, this idea that sometimes we're just, you know, we're so excited to fulfill God's plan on our best days. And we're doing it, uh, using, taking matters into our own hands. So the question would be, why? Why this pattern of behavior? I think there's a couple of reasons. The first one is a big one. It's pride. Um, Abraham has this sense, and I think we share this, that if you want something right, you know, you do it yourself. And when he hears these promises of land and people and blessings, I think that while he's being given a promise, I think he's hearing an obligation. And it's sort of like uh, when Kevin led us through the confession today, when it says that God gave us a law of liberty and what we received was chains. I think the same thing's happening with Abraham here. Um, it's almost like Abraham's got a motto, and his, his motto is God makes the promises, I keep the promises. And we all know with a motto like that that making promises is a very easy thing to do, right? Everybody can make promises. But keeping promises, that's critical. That's where the hard work comes in. I think that what Abraham heard God say was, Abraham, all this is yours if you just don't goof it up. And so Abraham's working very, very hard in his life not to goof it up. This pride, this self-centeredness, cuts a path, I think, through our hearts that is so very deep and so very wide that we really don't even perceive it. Uh, it shapes our behaviors, our attitudes, our, the way we pursue uh, our actions, even if they're godly ones, uh, and warps them in ways that we, we don't even uh, notice. So you'd ask yourself, so what? I am a self. Aren't I allowed to be self-centered? What's the problem with this? It's my nature. Well, the problem in, uh, there's a lot of problems, but, but one in particular is that it leads uh, to fear. It leads to fear, especially in cases where God has made some sort of a promise, right? I'm going to make this happen. And then we assume responsibility for making that come true. And so what we've done is we've transferred responsibility from the first party, who is completely infallible, and as far as we've experienced, like a rock, and we've transferred it over to this new party ourselves, who is very unreliable. And in our own personal experience, um, not somebody that we can count on. And when we do this, we lose confidence in the outcome of that promise. It suddenly is very shaky. It's like our, it's like our, our motive, uh, our, our saying is, I simply cannot rely on the person I've put in charge. I want to give an example of this that I think... Uh, we've all experienced. I experienced it years ago, and you guys are experiencing it maybe a little bit more now. It's, it's church planting. Uh, when I was at Green Tree, I've been at Green Tree for about 15, 16, somewhere in there, 17 years now, I guess. And I was there for the, for the, for the part that you'd call where they were a plant. You, know, you don't really think of it that way anymore. Kind of where you guys are right now, a few years into it, and you're, you're kind of figuring some things out. Now, God has made a promise Right? God has said, I am going to have a church, and I'm going to make it grow and flourish. Nothing is going to prevail against that church. 
That's a promise that we have from God that we have a complete assurance in. And every time a church gets planted, that's like a little, a little but important part of that promise coming to fruition. But when we do it, especially if we're kind of involved, we start to, we start to assume control and responsibility to make sure this promise works out. And we start asking ourselves questions. We start to worry. You know, we start to say, are we going too fast? You know, or maybe we're going too slow. Uh, are we spending too much money on this or that? Or maybe we're not spending enough. We should be more aggressive. Um, maybe we should uh, move to stage C or D or whatever it is in the church planting manual. Maybe we should be there now. And you get very anxious because you start to feel like if I don't make the right decision or if we don't collectively make the right decisions, then this thing's going to fail. And you start to feel very, very afraid because you've assumed, in that instance, you've assumed responsibility for the growth of the kingdom of God. That's what you've taken on your shoulders, and you are not equipped for it. I'm certainly not equipped for it. And so it naturally leads to fear. So the only advice in that situation that you could give yourself is you need to hand that back, right? You need to hand that responsibility back to where it belongs. And the minute you do that, you're still concerned, right? You're still involved, but you're not anxious anymore, right? Because the outcome is assured at that point because you've put the right person in charge. So when we left Abraham, I think we left him wandering. He had wandered away from land and he had wandered away from children. And he's down in Egypt. He's acting on his own. He's got himself alone and exiled. So I would not say at this point it's mission accomplished. That's basically, in a nutshell, that's how Abraham responds to God. We just, we just sort of heard it there in those examples. So the next thing we would want to ask is, well, how does God respond to Abraham? But before we do that, I just want to put up for a contrast, I want to, I want to ask, how would I respond? Meaning, uh, when you think about how God responds to Abraham... I ask myself, well, how do I respond when um, I have uh, authority over somebody like God has over Abraham, and I love them, and there's things I want them to do, and I've expressed my will to them? I don't have many examples of this in my life, but my children are one example, all right? And they're not here today, so I can speak freely. But my children are, are people that are in this relationship with me. And so I ask myself, well, what do I do? How do I react when they sort of go against my will the way Abraham did? And I thought, you know, I, go, I broke it down to three stages. Stage one is you are dead to me. Um, this is where, I mean, I have to confess as a dad, I'm done. I, I'm trying to figure out my minimum sort of legal obligations to these children. You know, I want to know if there's military academies or boarding schools that I can send them away to. And, and sort of like write them off. And this can last from, you know, a millisecond before I catch myself to a couple of days where I'm sort of in that very angry mode. Before I finally move on to stage two, which is you can still fix this. Now, this sounds better than it really is because this is not the stage where I'm looking for their I'm sorry or, you know, I apologize. I have no interest in that. I want to know what are you going to do to fix this? What are you going to do to make it better, to make atonement for what you did wrong? That's what I'm focused on when I go to stage two. The sad thing is 
this is how I treat the people that I love the most in my life. If you are uh, an acquaintance of mine or just a stranger, you're probably never going to experience stage two. You're going to be stuck in stage one. Stage three is forgiveness. Now, this obviously does not come naturally to me because it takes me a long time to get there. When I do this to the same, these are the same kids I am reading the Bible to, you know, each night. And I'm treating them like this during the day. And so I'm making a mockery of the gospel to them when I do this. Um, I don't want you to feel too bad for my kids. Believe me, they get even. Um, the other day, one of them reminded me how they get even because they have this, they have this way of saying, when they want to talk to me about when I was young, they'll say, um, you know, they want to ask about color television or what was cable like or something, and they'll say, Dad, back when you were alive, did you blah, 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 blah. Back when you were alive. So that's their attitude when they look at me. And so I don't think they realize how much that hurts, but they definitely get even with me. So um, the question then is, why do I behave that way? I mean, I love them. I behave that way, one, because of pride, right? When they question my authority, it makes me angry because I'm a prideful person. And two, I react that way out of fear because when I see them making bad decisions, that tells me I'm a failure as a parent. And that makes me very afraid. And so I react with both those things that Abraham reacts with. Now, here's the good news. God has none of these problems when he reacts to us. He certainly has no fear. And whatever self-centeredness he has is perfectly appropriate to someone who's the center of everything. So he can react uh, in a way that I simply cannot. He is able to forgive Abraham this trespass and these many trespasses, and he's able to restore him immediately. And he does that uh, because he's able to go right to stage three. He's able to go right to forgiveness. And I want to read in uh, verses 17 to 20 now. I want to read how he does that. Verse 17 of Genesis um, chapter 12. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So the question is, wonderful. So what? How does that story help me with the journey that I'm on? Whether I'm brand new, stuck in that pit, mired in a sin pattern, in a place of apathy, feeling crushed, feeling far away, how does this help me? And I think the answer is that, frankly, um, I have zero advice for anybody in that kind of a position, as far as at least this text goes. There is really no advice I could give to any of us. We are self-centered, fearful, anxious creatures. There's no advice. Instead, there's news. News is better. Uh, the point of these stories is not, you know, look at what Abraham's doing. Try to imitate him. Try to be more like him. Work harder. 
And if you do, good things are going to happen to you, and you'll end up in the same place Abraham did. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the advice. I think the news is that these stories, next, is the, the point of these stories is not um, about the, oh, sorry, I went, went ahead. The stories, I'm sorry, Gabe, I, I'm getting you messed up. You're just fine. The story is not about the twists and turns in the life of Abraham, right? It's about the steady hand of God. And that is what we're supposed to be experiencing, I think, when we read these stories, is the steady hand of God through all these ups and downs in Abraham's life. And so I want to finish by focusing not on Abraham and his sort of, you know, fake right and fake lefts. I want to focus on God and his steady hand. And I want to do it in three ways. I want to focus on his, pre his presentness, the fact that he is powerful, and the fact that he is patient. In this story, I think he exhibits those three things very well, uh, uh, that he is present, powerful, and patient. Now, by present, what I mean is he is continuously involved in Abraham's life. He is continuously involved in Abraham's life. We saw him rescue Abraham and Sarah for, in the story we just read today. But I also want to point out in those three exhibits that I walked through for later in Abraham's life, in all three of these, in exhibit A, the lot affair, was it not God who stepped in after Abraham made that little plan? And he said to Abraham, he said, now, you lift up your eyes, Abraham. And when he says those words, he's, he is purposefully repeating what Abraham said to Lot because he's revoking that agreement, right? He's canceling it. He says, you look north, south, east, and west. All that land is yours. So God stepped in and put it back together. In Exhibit B, the Hagar affair, do you remember who it was? It was God that separated Hagar and Ishmael away. It was God who saved them in the desert. It was God who gave them a different destiny. And he gave them one that was completely separate from Abraham and Sarah. Why? Because it's a totally untenable situation for what God's plan is. So he honors that and separates them away and he fixes it. In Exhibit C, the trip to Gerar. Now this is the second time Abraham has gone down and done this sister act thing. Now, if any of you have kids, it's very hard when your kids do the very same thing twice in a row to be gracious. But what does God do? He wakes up that king. Literally, he wakes up that king. And he gets Sarah sent back to Abraham. And he gets the both of them sent back to the promised land to restore them to, with everything that they had. So God is clearly continuously involved in Abraham's life. And God is continuously involved, whether it's these huge issues like, you know, um, parting seas or little issues like finding lost axe heads, you know, in the river. He is continuously involved. So when we hear this and we think about it for ourselves, we have to remember not to believe lies that we are taught or lies that we tell ourselves. And they're lies like this. God is a clockmaker. He built this universe, he wound it up, and he stepped back, and he, he let it run so very elegantly. That's not true. Or that God is a God of the very big religious decisions in your life. He steps in when you're making your conversion decision or important decisions that affect your faith. Other than that, he really doesn't care, and he just sort of leaves you, you know, to your own methods. Or that God is a God of the finish line, right? He's standing there at the finish line. He's... he's encouraging you. He's shouting for you. And when you cross the line, he's going to tell you, well done. There's parts of that that are true, but God is certainly not a God of the finish line. God is at every single turn of our race. 
He is continuously involved in our lives. I think what you can draw from this, God will accept our invitation to be involved, but he will not wait for our permission to be involved. And there's a big difference there. And thank God that's true because we won't ask, right? We're just too darn stubborn. So God will um, accept an invitation, but he's not going to wait for our permission to get involved in our lives. God is continually present. He's also powerful. And by powerful, what I mean is that he is completely sovereign and completely in control. We saw God rescue Abraham and Sarah. He rescued them, he redeemed her, and he restored them both. It was a complete restoration. And he did it fairly effortlessly, right? Wasn't, he didn't break a sweat. But he does it in a way I think is very interesting. The way he orchestrates events in these two people's lives, he's communicating something. And what's interesting to me about it is he's not communicating with Abraham or Sarai because they are not in a position to understand what he's saying. And I want to explain. Um, what he did when he rescued them, he had his chosen people went down into Egypt. Now, it's just Abraham and Sarah at this point. They're the core, but it's his chosen people. They descended into captivity, right, when Sarah was taken by Pharaoh. As soon as that promise is threatened, right, for land and people, God steps in and takes action. He uses plagues, and God induces Pharaoh to free Sarah, give her back to Abraham. They leave that country heavy with spoil, right? Pharaoh loads Abraham up and sends them away with everything. And they return to the land that he promised. When you hear that, you might say, okay, that sounds vaguely familiar. I've heard this story. Uh, God is recreating the Exodus. But what's interesting is he's doing it 500 years before it happens. So this is not something that Abraham was going to learn from. This is for us. This is for everybody that came after Abraham. This is, I think, buried like a time capsule in Scripture for us to receive when we're ready. Um, you might ask, well, is that, is that God showing off? Yes. Yes, he is. He's showing off because he wants us to have confidence that this is a God who can manipulate history, right? Who can change the, the future. He can control it in any way he wants, and he can make stories come out in any order that he chooses. He's the complete master of everything he surveys. It gives us great confidence in him. When we see things like this in Scripture, when I see things like this, when these things sort of uncover themselves, it reminds me of snorkeling um, in a very deep ocean, okay? When you snorkel in a very deep ocean, not that you would, but you could, when you do, you see things right, just below the surface, clearly. Same thing when you read scripture. There's things that you make out that are very clear. But you also, in both cases, whether you're snorkeling in that deep ocean or reading scripture, you perceive faint outlines, right? Things that don't quite um, have clarity. Things that are just simply too deep to be perceived by us. Um, they're beyond our grasp. But I would submit that that's okay. Because I think it's enough when we read scripture that we perceive not only the surface things, but that we perceive these deeper things. And if we, may not, if we may not grasp them clearly, 
But just the fact that we see that they're there, that encourages us to go back, right? We want to go back. We want to have better equipment. We want better equipped so we can dive deeper, so we can understand it because we know it's there. And that encourages us to go back to Scripture over and over and over like we should. So I think God does an amazing thing of showing his power in doing that. Finally, he's patient. When I say he's patient, what I mean is that he is able to forgive, and he's able to go right to stage three. Remember the three stages that I went through with my kids? Well, he goes right to stage three. Now, there's nothing wrong with stage one and two, at least not in the way God would apply it, just in the way I would. Stage one, anger at sin. That's right. He is right to be angry at sin. Stage two, the desire to make things right. Um, before you can show mercy, there has to be a foundation of justice. Mercy without a foundation of justice is unkind and arbitrary and evil. And so God needs there to be justice. He needs there to be atonement. And finally, he's able to give forgiveness. But here's where God and I are obviously very, very different. He's already taken care of the first two stages, right? Because he took all that anger that he had for all the sin in the world, past, present, and future, and he put it on the shoulders of his son, Jesus. And then Jesus fulfilled stage two on the cross, making atonement. Jesus didn't need any forgiveness, right? He had done nothing wrong. So whatever forgiveness gets generated in stage three by those first two actions, that just flows out, right? And it flows backward in time, and it covers Abraham, and it flows forward in time, and it covers us, and it washes clean every person who accepts that sacrifice that Jesus made. In a couple of minutes, uh, we're going to celebrate the forgiveness that comes through that sacrifice on the cross. Um, I would suggest that while we're doing that, we would consider uh, not only the, uh, the wonderful thing that God did for us, but also the amazing promises that are yet to be kept. And I think, knowing what we've read today, we can do that without fear, right, and without being anxious. And we can truly rest in the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the promise um, that you made to Abraham and to his children, including the ones in this room today. We confess that we struggle with a very strong desire to take charge of those promises out of our own pride and then we get uh, very anxious and full of doubt when those results start to fall short. But Father, I am so thankful that you know our hearts so very well. And so you did not condition the promise on our own efforts. But instead, you sent your son, Jesus, to secure a land and a people to and for you. And so then to you goes all the glory and all the honor. Amen. Amen. As the ushers come forward this morning, the baskets for offertory. If you feel that.